Good morning, everybody. It's good to uh, be worshiping with you today. Be reminded that Jesus paid everything for each of us in his death. And we've come in the, the name of this God that we just saw in Exodus 34 and to worship him, and we're all loved by this God, and that is worth our worship. Don't you agree? Even for those of you who are left-handed. Tuesday is National Left-Handers Day. How many of you, by show of left hand, are lefties? Raise them proud. Man, quite a few of you. That's fantastic. Did you know that uh, studies show that you are the only people in your right minds? <laughs> I'm not so sure um, she was in her right mind when she tried to put something on my left hand. You see, a couple weeks ago when our Kenya national uh, mission team was seeking to, uh, we were getting ready to leave the, the guest house we'd been staying at during the time, one of the uh, hostesses there wanted to give us a gift. And so uh, part of the gift for the ladies in our group were that they uh, put them in African headdresses, as you can see there. Uh, which was awesome. It looked a little bit uh, tricky from my vantage point. And so when they said to us men they wanted to give us a gift, they said they want to give us kind of a beaded bracelet. And I thought that's much easier than what I just saw happening with the headdresses. The problem was they only had one size of bracelets extra small. And so I watched as this very nice, kind lady took this beaded bracelet and put it over my, my fingers. And I, I have sort of abnormally large hands, I'm afraid, and big knuckle. And she is just pulling and cramming and getting hand lotion and rubbing it down and pulling and yanking and forcing that thing down on my... Finally got it on there. And I thought, this lady looks so nice from afar. And she, you know, she wanted to give me this gift, and she's so nice, but she hurt me. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if we think of God like that. You know, he looks so nice from afar, and he wants to give us good gifts. But boy, if you get close, he'll hurt you. Man, he will cram his life down your throat. He will push and shove and hurt you. That, at least, was the view of many of the ancients when they thought about the gods, I think about the story of Troy. It takes place maybe somewhere around the time as Moses on Mount Sinai. This Greek king named Agamemnon is sailing across the Mediterranean to fight in the Trojan War, and his fleet dies in the water. There's no wind because Artemis, the goddess of the Greeks, is angry. She always seems to be angry. And she demands that he make a brutal sacrifice, his daughter's life, and so he does it. He cuts his daughter's throat to appease Artemis, and the story goes, the winds began to blow. See, if you're in the ancient world, you feared the gods, and maybe in the modern world you do too. But Yahweh is different. Last week we began the series where we've been exploring the, the name of our God in one of the most quoted passages in the Bible, uh, by the Bible, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. We have this intriguing revelation of God, who He is and His name and His character to Moses. And, and we've just been walking through kind of line by line as we reacquaint ourselves with this God who has a name, the God we've come to worship today. Let me uh, read uh, this passage, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, if you want to follow along there. In fact, uh, I've, I've challenged us as a church over the course of this series. If you want to memorize these couple of verses, I think it'll be well worth your time. 
So why don't we read this out loud together this morning as we put it to memory. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Just read this with me. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This God, this God has a name. In fact, as you see the, the, the all-caps word Lord in our English Bibles, often that translates the name Yahweh. And this is a God who wants to share His name with us, who wants us to know who He is and wants to be in relationship with us. And the first thing we learn about this God in this list is that He is the compassionate and gracious God. It tops the list, maybe the most dominant characteristic of this God right off the bat. So let's take a moment to think through those important words. He's compassionate. The Hebrew term is rahum. Let me hear you say rahum. Yeah, it means merciful. It's often translated that way. It's, it's a deep love rooted in a natural bond. In fact, it comes from a root word that means a female womb. This is the love of a mom for her infant child. Isaiah the prophet uses this way in his sermon in Isaiah 49. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion, no rahum for the child she has been born? Or David uses it this way in Psalm 103. He quotes Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then he says this of Yahweh, verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Rahum is the love of a parent for its child. This is our God. Now, I've, as you know, I've been blessed to have uh, three children of, of my own, and uh, I will always remember, of course, the first time I met my first child. <laughs> it was kind of a jarring moment in a young man's life. Uh, my first son, Noah, was born, and he came way too early eight and a half weeks early. I learned pretty quickly life revolved around his time schedule, not mine. Uh, I was 12 in that picture, by the way, as you can see, <laughs> as you can tell. I had my seminary schedule all planned out. He was due to come in March. I was going to get all the papers done and all the reading done and everything done. He came in January. And my goodness, he came into my life and he cried and he ate, and he dirtied his diapers. That's about all he did. Come to think of it, that's about all he does now, really, at age 20. <laughs> he cost me money. He cost me so much time and so much heartache and worry and all of these things. But I love him. God help me. I'd give my life for him right this moment without hesitation. Rahum, this is God. This is what he feels for you. 
Now, tragically, for some of you, that doesn't connect at all. Maybe your family was so warped out of shape that you grew up, you don't know what a compassionate parent feels like. You, you maybe had a dad who was mad at you all the time, who was always demanding perfection, just waiting for you to mess up, or your mom was, was critical and nagging, and you were never smart enough, never athletic enough, never pretty enough, never good enough. Or maybe your parents or one of your parents were, were never around, and, and you're on your own. So the idea of Yahweh as a compassionate parent just doesn't compute for you. But let me hear, I'm here to tell you this morning, his love for you is deep. David would pray it this way in Psalm 63, because your love is better than life, he says, my lips will glorify you. This God has compassion on you. He's the compassionate and gracious God. Think about that other word, gracious. It's the Hebrew term chanun. Let me hear you say chanun. If, if compassion is a feeling word, then hanun is an action word. It means to show favor. It means to do something for someone in a time of need. For example, in Exodus 22 in the law, hanun uh, is used there. It says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, that is, uh, as collateral for a loan, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, God says, I will hear for I am hanun. I am gracious. So here the word has, has to do with interest rates on a loan. It has to do with justice for the poor. It's favor in action. Or it's used again in 2 Kings, uh, verses, chapter 13, verse 22. Uh, Hazel, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, but the Lord, Yahweh, was gracious to them and compassionate uh, and showed concern for them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here, Hanun is saving Israel from annihilation from a foreign enemy army. It's a wall of defense around a vulnerable nation. It's favor in action. And then it shows up in Psalm 86. David quotes again Exodus 34. He says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then he prays this. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Hanun, be gracious to me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Here a prayer for, for God's Hanun is a request to, to rescue, to save Israel from danger. So Yahweh feels compassion for his people like a father, like a mother feels compassion for her child. Yahweh feels graciousness. He shows favor to his people for those who are in need. So when you come before God, when you come before him in worship service or in prayer or in your afternoon jog or in the crisis at work, wherever you come before him, know that this God, he comes before you feeling for you caring about you, and he wants to act on your behalf. He wants to act to help. I think sometimes the trouble is we come before this God, and that's not on our mind. I'm afraid sometimes we come before this God either believing that we deserve his goodness, that we've done all the right things. We come to church, we read our Bible, we give a little in the offering, and so therefore he owes us. Or we come before him believing the opposite, that we could never experience his goodness. We've done all the wrong things, and he hates us. But that's not this God. And to those extremes, Jesus has a story to tell. Here's the story. Maybe the best corrective story, maybe the most famous story he ever told. It was about a father in Luke 15. Jesus simply said, there was a man who had two sons. Normally, we call this the parable of the prodigal son. 
But really, it's a story about a father, a father who had two children, and he loved deeply these two children. He was full of rahum and hanun for these kids. And if you've read the story in Luke 15, you know, one of them, the younger one, he's kind of wild, maybe as a younger child, you know, as birth order studies would show, you know, he was kind of the loud, the brash one, you know, he perhaps was the free spirit, he's the party waiting to happen, he wants to be the center of attention, you know, he wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He wants to be right in the middle of all the attention. The problem is he wants to be, well, spoiled. Maybe he feels entitled or a little bit like he can get whatever he wants. And then the other son, the older son, he's kind of a self-righteous snob in the story. He's the firstborn after all. You know, he's the achiever. He gets the best grades. He colors inside the lines. He does what is needed to be done. He always makes his bed, but he's kind of bossy, a little judgmental, proud. One day, Jesus says, the younger son shatters the family. Luke 15, verse 12. The younger one said to the father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. That doesn't sound like a big deal, except in that culture, it was essentially like saying, listen, I can't wait for you to die, Dad. Give me my piece of the pie now. And in an honor and shame-based society and culture, this was unthinkable. This was a slap in the face, but the father does it. Verse 12, so he divided his property between them. Now, this is a family with some wealth. They have some servants. So getting all this together is going to take a little bit of time. The father has to liquidate some of his assets. He has to sell his livestock. So he starts doing that, and guess what? The village starts hearing, why are you doing this? What's happening? What's going on? They begin to hear the story about the son. This becomes the part of every conversation. This is an unthinkable thing that your son is doing. And all of a sudden, the shame begins to flow. But his father, no doubt, keeps thinking through the whole time, will my son come to his senses? Will he stay? Well, I get him back, but he won't. The day can't come soon enough. Verse 13, not long after that, the young, younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Meanwhile, the older son stayed at home. He did the right things, and his heart got hard. Well, naturally, the irresponsible son runs out of money, right? His life goes belly up. And then a famine hits, Jesus says in the story. Now, we don't know the, the depth of a famine because in our world, you know, if a famine were to hit, boy, we have telethons and world news. We have Red Cross and Samaritan's Purse, and we rally the world, and we help people, and that's wonderful. In those days, that's not what happened. When a famine hit, it was time for robbery and murder and people were left rot out in the streets and people were sold into slavery and there was cannibalism. But even with all of that going on, this younger boy doesn't want to go home. Why not? Why would he not go home in the midst of all of that? Because he knows what's happening if he goes home. Ken Bailey writes about a certain Jewish custom that if Jewish boys were to take their inheritance and lose it among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and then attempt to return home, there was a ceremony enacted by the family and by the village to show the depth of shame the son has brought on the family. If he dared to return home, the entire community would gather upon his return, and to show as a symbol of how destructive he had been, they would take a pot, and they would smash it before him, and they would pick up the pieces, and they would say to him, you are cut off from your people. 
And it was a picture, a way of showing that this is the brokenness you've caused in your community. You've broken your trust with us. You've broken this village. You've broken your father's heart. It was a way of saying, you are not whole. You are not shalom. You are not welcome. You are cut off. In fact, the name of the ceremony in Hebrew is the kezezah, the cutting off. Not only that, but any Middle Eastern father who is so shamed by a son like this was culturally obligated to shame his son back. So if the son were to come back and the servants were to come to the father and say, your son has come back, his response was supposed to be, what son? I have no son. Send him away. And some of you have experienced that kind of shame, that kind of brokenness, that kind of hurt. Well, finally, Jesus says, this young boy, he comes to his senses in the midst of this nastiness, and he decides to go back home and to beg his dad for mercy. He makes up a little speech. He sees the village. He knows what's coming. He braces himself. But what he does not count on is that he has, there's this old, heartbroken father who is scanning the horizon looking for him, and he sees him in the distance, and he knows that's his boy. And in verse 20, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion. Was filled with compassion. Rahum, the deep love of a parent for a child. This son did everything imaginable to break his father's heart, but his father's compassion is unbreakable. So that is what he felt, that compassion. So how did he respond? He acted. Hanun. He ran to his son. Luke even uses a technical term to describe what the father did. It's normally reserved for athletic contests. It means literally he, he raced to his son. He sprinted to his son. Now, understand in the Middle East, dignified patriarchs of the family did not run. With long, heavy robes, they walked in a slow, dignified manner. They did not run. Strong, in-control men do not run because in order to run in that culture, you had to lift up your heavy, dignified robes. You had to bare your naked legs and perhaps some undergarments as well. Slaves did that. Little boys did that. Fathers did not run. But this father ran. Why? Because he sees his boy in the distance, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows that when he, if his son gets to the community and the community meets him first, they will enact kezazah. They will cut him off. That will break his heart. That will crush him. Maybe I'll lose him forever. I can't risk that. I've got to get there first. I've got to get them before everyone else. And so this father gathers up his robes, and he runs to his son because this father is filled with compassion and so he takes on himself the humiliation that by all rights should have been on that boy. He takes it upon himself and he gathers up his robes and he shows his naked legs and he runs to his son because this God, this God is so filled with compassion for people, for you, that whatever distant country that you have found yourself in, that this God, when you take one step toward him, he picks up his robes, he takes on all the humiliation and shame upon himself and he runs to you. This God is so gracious, that even if you're pouting in his presence like the older son in the midst of all of this, even, even then, if you're so arrogant as to believe that he owes you something, he still comes to you and he takes that shame upon himself and he invites you to the party. This is the God who has the name 
Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. He's the merciful parent who wants to sweep you up into his chest no matter where you're coming from, no matter what you've done. For this God, Jesus said, this God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. This God is full of compassion and grace for every single person, including you. So let me ask you the question as simply as I can this morning. Will you come to this God? Not like the older son with this sort of cocky entitlement as if you deserved his gifts or attention. No, will you, will you come to him? Not like the younger son, not in this scared defeat trying to earn your way back to God, you know, making your language and your speech work out the best you can. No, will you come back to this God, the compassionate and gracious God, and let him be your refuge? Hebrews 4 tells us how, again, alluding to this verse in Exodus, the writer says to the church, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, not, not cocky, not scared, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and grace. Could I use the old Hebrew words, rahum and chanun? to help us in our time of need. Let me be honest with you. Today, today is our time of need. We live in a world of hostility and apathy. Have you heard the news? There's shootings. There's death. There's anger. We need mercy, and we need action. We need compassion, and we need grace. So whether you're the prodigal or the Puritan, whether you're the, the libertine or the legalist, whether you're the rule keeper or the rebel, come to this God and be embraced by Him and experience His compassion, His grace that is most brilliantly seen in His Son Jesus, who on that cross, out of His love, His body became broken. He became kezazah. He became cut off. He paid for our sin, and nobody earns their way back to this God. Nobody. You just come. So let me ask again, will you come to this God? Let me take a few moments with you, if you wouldn't mind, just bowing for some prayer. I want to give you some time to come before this God. I want to lead through some portions of the Lord's Prayer, and as I'm praying that, I want to give you just a few moments to personally speak just quietly to this God. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, your name, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, we praise together. Just take a moment, even where you're at, and just praise his name. Just reflect on who he is for a moment. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Father, may Springfield know you. May they know your compassion. May they know your grace. Maybe take a moment now to pray for someone in your life who needs that compassion and that grace. Give us today our daily bread. We trust you, Father. You care for us like a good parent. Maybe take a moment to entrust God with something that you need in your life right now. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors, Father, run to us. Shower us with your mercy. Maybe take a moment right now to ask for his mercy as you confess your sins. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Father, keep us from the far country. Maybe take a moment to seek his direction in your life, even right now. Yahweh, you are the compassionate and gracious God. Thank you that you come running to us. We don't deserve it. We only embrace it. Thank you that you came running to us so far that your son took on our flesh, took on our shame, and paid for our sin. But now risen to life, you call us into that as well. Help us to follow you into that life each and every day and invite others into it as well to know the compassionate and gracious God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.